Well, thank you for joining us in that. And as I said, there are between 100 and 150 other churches who have signed up to, to join us in praying for this next generation. And so as you go about the rest of your day, please continue to, as the Lord prompts you, to pray for these students who are preparing even now to leave mom and dad, at least for a short season, and, uh, and enter into the halls of learning in our country. And also the international students, uh, universities across Canada are very attractive to those from all over the world. And so we have a fantastic opportunity to influence the nations from here. And so be praying for uh, those young men and women as they truly are packing up everything they know to come here and, uh, and, and learn and grow. May they encounter someone who knows Jesus and engage in the gospel. And so be praying for them as well. As Ryan introduced, uh, I'm not scary, which is good. That's what I appreciated about that, Ryan, that uh, you linked me to not being scary. So I'm thankful for that. <clears throat> My name is Sean. I'm a member here uh, of West Meadows. It's a privilege to be speaking with you this morning. Uh, and thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, Mark, for giving me a chance to, to come and speak on Every Student Sunday. I'm going to start using that phrase. I'd appreciate it if you did. We want to take over a day <laughs> so that, you know, people get used to it. <laughs> so uh, today's Every Student Sunday. Um, <clears throat> as uh, Mark asked me to speak on a psalm, uh, one leapt out at me. It wasn't quite as quickly as the past few guest speakers. It took me a little bit of time to think and pray about it, but Psalm 145 certainly jumped out at me. And here in Psalm 145, we see God's great mission. God's great mission to show his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness, and his gloriousness to all generations. And today, this is what I want to share with you. But there is a challenge. There's a problem. There is a challenge that you're very much aware of. <clears throat> and that challenge is we have an unchanging message to share with a rapidly changing world. Each generation struggles to speak the language of the next. And this has been true since the dawn of time. Parents don't get their kids, and kids don't get their parents. And that gap broadens as the generations pass. And uh, I thought we'd have some fun with this just to illustrate the point a little bit this morning. And so um, I'm gonna, I need two volunteers, and I'm going to ask Norm McDonald and Josh Dixon to come up. So I haven't prepped them in any way. They are truly volunteers, except that I asked them before the service to volunteer. So um, <laughs> I just need this mic to be working here. And as they head up here, I mean, just to illustrate the point that some things don't change, I'm wearing a shirt. This is my dad's shirt from the 70s. He used to use this to work on the farm. And then in the 90s, I wore this shirt even though I was 80 pounds, and it was like a sail that threatened to blow me away in the wind. But it was cool. That was what you needed to do because it was the grunge years. And now that I've told all the young people this is my dad's shirt from the 70s, it's cool again. And so um, some things don't change like plaid. But some things do change. And to illustrate that, I have a couple questions, a simple quiz questions here that I'm going to ask you one at a time. I'm going to start with Norm. Uh, Norm, if I described you as woke, what would I be saying? If I said, you're so woke. That's a new term. I don't know. I'm awake. I know that. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. That's, that's, that's the root of it. Do you know what woke means? Do you use that? 
Um, I have heard it before. You um, don't use it that much yet? Yeah. That's okay. It's one of the more popular terms on social media right now, and it just means to be socially aware, to be awake, to be... Uh, it kind of means you're cool. I would describe you as woke. I think you are woke. I think you're aware of what's going on in the, the world. Best of him. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, Josh, if I told you you were a ducky shin cracker, what would I be saying? Uh, many ducks. Um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> a ducky shin, shin cracker. Norm, do you know what? Do you, have you ever heard that term before? It was popular in the 40s. I don't know if, if you were doing this. Yeah. It might have been a little bit before. Yeah, <laughs> and <clears throat> well, it's something Baptists don't do very often. Uh, ducky shinkracker means you're a really good dancer. Dancer. Uh, oh, were you a jive artist? There you go. <laughs> so, Norm is a ducky shinkracker. So, uh, Norm, do you snap? <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, but. Uh, how would you snap to people in this generation? <laughs> well, the way I'd snap, bring the subject around that somewhere in the conversation, I will ask them if they're going to go to heaven, and <laughs> I know how to tell them. Okay, I know you do, and that's good. So um, a snap is, is just sending pictures to one another. Snapchat is the most popular uh, form of social media currently amongst high school students. It's a way of taking pictures and sending it to your friends, and as soon as they see it, it disappears. It's supposed to. There are ways around that. Um, anyway, it's a social media platform, really popular. Everybody, everybody's using it now. Um, <clears throat> Josh, do you know what flannel graph is? A say again. A what? Say again. Say again. Oh, flannel graph. Do you know what that is? Flannel. Uh, uh, no. <laughs> Norm, why don't you tell I them what flannel graph is? I flannel graph when I got saved in '59. I knew no Bible. I heard that children needed the Lord. And we started making pictures on the flannel graph and did the whole Bible and artwork. And right now, we sent it to Ukraine. It's driving by a trailer around the country because they have no video. So if you want to know about flannel graph, I did it for 35. No, we started in 59, and we retired in 2004. So wow. How many kids do you, just guess, how many kids do you think you told Bible stories to using flannel graph? Thousand in the community of Athlon, where I was, we started in our home with seven kids. The community heard about it and they thought it was a good program. They give us the hall, and we had a hundred kids a week on Wednesday. And of course, I was not a Christian, and it was good because to draw the pictures, I had to learn the Bible story. So, 13 years later, when I wanted to become a missionary, I had no problem doing the course because I'd done all the Bible, and uh, I, of course, couldn't take four years of Bible training because I had a family and a home. So they agreed that I took it by correspondence, and I passed and on my certificate on the walls the 29th of November, 1972, under the authority and the privilege of the Bible Club movement of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, I was a missionary to the gospel <laughs> of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hundreds of kids hearing the gospel through flannel graph. Thousands of kids. Okay. You'll have to look, you Google it when you get home. It's, it's cool. Oh, no. That's a good <clears throat> uh, Norm, what do the initials NF mean to you? NF. <laughs> Not fun? <laughs> I didn't plan this. I, I mean, I wrote this quiz question yesterday, but um, he's wearing the t shirt, 
So uh, describe who's NF to you. <laughs> uh, his name is Nate Fierstein, a uh, Christian rapper. Um, he released two new singles in like the past month. Yeah, went two days ago, 600,000 views in two days yeah. on his uh, new single, Green Lights. He's a Christian rapper. I bet yeah. I'm half of those. So. Yeah. <laughs> and he's important to you, right? Yeah. yeah. Like, yeah, he, uh, like, he has a really like, sad past, and he lost his mother to um, a drug overdose. And it's a really sad past, and his music is like, really touching, and it's fantastic. <laughs> Yeah, to say the least. <laughs> exactly, I like it too. Okay, so Josh, um, do you know who composed and sang "I'd Rather Have Jesus"? I don't really look at composers, so <laughs> no. <laughs> Songwriter. No. <laughs> he was good friends with Billy Graham. Do you know who that is? Beverly Shea. Yeah, George Beverly Shea. So Norm knows. Do you know Josh that he sang to 200 million people before YouTube was ever invented? <laughs> It's true. No, I was telling you. Uh, That's good. You guys can sit down. Thank you for. George Beverly Shea, 200 million people before you two, he sang in front of. And, um, but if you know George Beverly Shea, you probably don't know NF. (laughs) And NF is the George Beverly Shea of this generation. And it's hard to wrap your mind around that when you know George Beverly Shea and have grown up listening to him. And then you hear an NF song. <laughs> You'd be like, no, he's not George Beverly Shea. But he is. Trust Josh and me. <clears throat> this is one of the challenges. We're going to do a little bit more on this before I get into the scriptures. Um, sociologists, anthropologists have broken down uh, the, the last few generations here. So currently... The silent generation, born between 1923 and 1945, who, or 1943, 23 to 43. Who here has been, was born in that age range? Good, there's, there's a bunch of hands here. Uh, this is, they refer to you as the silent generation, um, largely because you grew up in the McCarthy years, where you were taught basically to keep your head down, don't complain, um, you know, be loyal. Uh, do the right thing. To you, uh, generally, and I'm speaking in generalities, I know there's always people who, who don't fit generalities, so forgive me if this doesn't describe you, but generally, this generation is, sees the world as black and white. There's good, there's bad, there's good, there's evil, there's right, there's wrong. Do the right thing. Be loyal. Work hard. And they pass that working hard onto their baby boomers. Um, who here is born between 1944 and 1964? This is the group most likely to lie, but there's a whole bunch of them <laughs> about their age, I mean, just about their age. Wow, that's a good number. I should probably just get you to stand. Uh, baby boomers, they, they love to work hard. They've changed the world, and they wanted to change the world. Uh, they pursued wealth. They're marked by revolution, whether it was the space race, the civil uh, liberties, uh, women's liberation, Vietnam economic uh, revolution. This is the wealthiest generation in history. They pursued career. And um, when they look at the world, they see it as a, as a gold mine. <laughs> they see the world as gold, something to be uh, conquered and uh, gathered for yourself. Um, that's the baby boomers, generally. And then came Generation X. This is me, 
uh, I was born in the late 70s, so I'm right on the border here, but Generation X, 1965 to 1980. So there's a few of you, okay? And so uh, we're on a journey, and we always will be. <laughs> life is a, a series of experiences, and we want to experience life. Um, we see the world in all shades of gray. We, we grew up uh, watching our parents work extremely hard, and uh, we didn't see them very much. <laughs> and so we tend to flip a little bit, and we really like work balance. We tend to hang around our kids a lot. Uh, some would say even like helicopters, uh, watching them every second of the day and always wondering where they are and wanting them to be safe. And so we see the world in shades of gray. Uh, everything's nuanced. And then came the millennials. Uh, so you were born between 80 and 95. A few of you. Oh, it's a bunch. That's good. So millennials, this is a generation everyone loves to hate currently. Um, uh, they, they have only known affluence. Uh, they win when they lose. Uh, everybody gets a ribbon. They're well-educated. They're well-traveled. Uh, they're well-connected. Uh, they're environmentally aware and socially aware, and they have very high expectations. These are the people looking for jobs that will allow them to travel six months of the year. And they're likely to inherit uh, the baby boomers' wealth. Uh, the wealth will kind of skip a generation. Uh, they, they see the world set for them on a silver platter. And then there's the I generation, and most of these would be out in the kids' program, but anyone born between 95 and now. So there'll be a few of you here. Yeah, there you go. So this is the I generation. They're addicted to their devices. They're the most diverse generation yet, and we're still learning about them, and they're still learning about themselves. And so um, uh, they really only see the world through the glow of a screen. That's how they see the world. <laughs> and it's kind of like... Uh, always on their device. Um, they're, and they're self-aware about that, by the way. They know they're addicted to their device. They, that's a self-reported stat that they're the most addicted to their device. That's about the only thing we know about them so far. <laughs> <clears throat> Here's the challenge, though. Um, as I travel the country and talk with leaders and pastors, I have become convinced that the biggest problem facing the church today is engaging the next generation in the gospel. It's been the challenge of any generation, but there's an acceleration to that challenge that we're in currently. This is one of those interesting places that we're in. It's akin to going from the King James Version to the NIV. The church culture was radically shaped by that, uh, leaving behind old language and entering into new language, but it happened over a period of a long time, and it, and it was led by a group of a relatively few who were heavily scholared, and, uh, and the platform they had to communicate was largely through print. And so it was a very controlled change, a somewhat slow change, but it was a significant change. Now imagine going through a language shift like that, except everybody has a voice. Everybody has a voice. Every youth pastor is trying to change the culture, trying to do it in, in their own way. And so uh, the youth in this church and the youth at Weka and the youth at Beulah, even though they're not very far apart, are all learning this with a slightly different set of language. <laughs> and they're learning also from, from you know, they're, they're taken from Jeff 
Vanderselt and all their, their favorite guys on, on YouTube, and, and, um, and they're mixing it all together, and it's not very controlled. In fact, it's the opposite of controlled. <laughs> it's chaotic. And so it's like the Tower of Babel is the best uh, experience I can share with you. So I see this on campus when we see students coming from churches from all across the country into one place, and they gather to study the Bible, and they don't understand each other. <laughs> they don't speak the same language. And so we're in this, in this place of kind of chaotic change, a place that we've not necessarily been before. <clears throat> According to a recent Canadian study, only four in ten young adults who attended church as kids do so today. The study's hemorrhaging faith. It's a Canadian study. You can look it up online, hemorrhaging faith. Not just because of the language change, but because of culture change, because of the attractiveness of the world. And this perhaps hasn't changed is there's this, is there's this call to leave what you knew. And so four in ten young adults who attended church as kids uh, still do today. That means six out of ten don't. Last year, uh, Power to Change saw 250 students come to faith, profess faith in Christ for the first time. And I'm so thankful for that. 250 kids whose eternal destiny has been changed. As I talk with my friends and university and navigators, I know that, that, that they're not seeing much more than that and, and probably less. And so we look at that and realize that if every year we saw 250 kids come to faith, that would you know, fill this section. That's all across Canada. If that continues... Where will the church be in 20, 30, 40 years? I'm thankful, but it isn't nearly enough. And so my heart cries out for revival, for God to awaken a generation, to give you and I, those of us in previous generations, wisdom and discernment, creativity, and know how we can pass on an unchanging message to an ever-changing world, to seek relevancy, but not as the first thing. As soon as churches seek relevancy as the first thing, we tend to strangely enough, become irrelevant. (laughs) We're just not that good at being relevant. But we do need to seek relevancy, to speak the language of the culture, and it's getting harder and harder to discern what that language is. And so it needs to take a lot of prayer and thoughtfulness, initiative, creativity, commitment. That's what it's going to take. And so this brings me to Psalm 145. Because in the end, we can't do it. <laughs> we need a God who will do it. And I believe he is doing it and will do it. And here's why. Because he is great. If you have your Bibles or it on your phone, I'm actually still old-fashioned in this way. I have it on my phone, but I prefer to read it here. <clears throat> Psalm 145, 3 to 6 says, Great is the Lord. And greatly to be praised. And his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of your might, of your awesome deeds, of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. A question for you. How would you describe that Jesus is powerful in your life, 
that he is great. How would you describe that? What words would you use? How would you describe Jesus' power, his greatness in your life? Do you experience his greatness on a daily daily basis? One of our temptations is to believe that God is not able to provide for us. We need to meditate on and speak of God's greatness, of his power and ability to show up in history, in our daily lives, to conquer sin and death. Our temptation, of course, is to, is, is to not believe that God is great. And that subtly works itself into us in the way that we seek to provide for ourselves. We work, we strive, we control, we push, we manipulate our own lives rather than recognize trust and rest in his greatness. When things come against us, our first tendency, our human tendency, and some generations more than others, is to push through, to work hard, to make it, make it change. I can do it. Rather than to say, oh God, I need you. You are great. Much greater than me. When you lay your head down each night, reflect, think on where God showed his greatness to you today. Where did he show up? And how can you tell your kids, your grandkids, about that? While you're thinking each night, remember that Jesus has conquered death. There's one thing I'm absolutely sure of. Every generation fears death. The, the great equalizer, the, the one thing we all have in common is death, and we fear it. Who will save us? Who is big enough to beat death? Who is great enough to conquer death? Remember, we have a God who is great. He is powerful, and he has risen. Speak of his greatness. Second, God's goodness. Psalm 145, verse 7. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. They shall sing aloud of your righteousness. One of our great temptations is in the midst of all the junk in our life, we can begin to doubt that God is good, that God is indeed good. We need to sing of God's goodness, even in the midst of suffering. But instead of singing, we're so often afraid. We whine. We hide. We said, I didn't get a ribbon. (laughs) God is good. This generation longs to hear with authenticity. They they don't want to hear that everything's going to be okay. They don't want to just hear everything's going to be okay. And so often we're tempted in painting a picture of of God's goodness of simply talking about how everything is going to be okay. We shy away from the messy stuff, the junk in our lives, the things that are hard. Because to older generations, it's shameful. It points out you didn't work hard enough. You didn't get it done. you You didn't win. But this generation wants to hear where, did, where was God? How did God show his goodness in the midst of the civil rights riots? In the midst of 22% interest on your mortgage? In the midst of 
suffering through chemo in the midst of watching your spouse pass away. How is God good? They wonder. And that is what they want to hear for you. And when we stand and sing with all our heart that we have a suffering Savior, we point them to Jesus. We point to the, the wounds in his hands and his side, and he say, that's how we know that God is good. We point to the cross and remind each other that we serve a God who, though he was without sin, suffered and died so that we might share in his goodness, so that we might find comfort in his nail-pierced arms. We need to be willing to speak of God's goodness in the midst of the mess. Thirdly, God's graciousness. Psalm 145, verses 8 to 10, says, The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you. Oh, Lord. One of my first bosses, mentors, and friends who encouraged me when I was younger challenged and taught me um, by, he just had a simple saying that he said at some point every day, and <laughs> it just drilled it into my mind. He'd say, aren't you glad God isn't fair? Hey, Sean, aren't you glad God isn't fair? I'm just so thankful today that I'm not in hell. He's like, it's where I deserve to be. <laughs> it's kind of kind of depressing if you think on it too much, but there, there is this sense of, you know, it, it really struck me, and he said every day, it's better than hell, Sean. It's better than hell. <laughs> now, hell should not be in any way to us a joke, and he didn't mean it that way. And as a young person, It's difficult to wrestle with the reality of hell. This place is better. Some of you may disagree. (laughs) Some of you may be walking through something where you're like, this is, uh, hell would be better to me than what I'm suffering through today. But it's not. That's a lie. God is at work in our world. This is better than hell. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. You ever wonder how you can do that? Well, it's with this perspective. Thank you, Jesus. This is better than hell. And, more importantly, thank you, Jesus. One day, I will see you face to face. Soon, all of us, no matter what generation we are a part of, will be face-to-face with God, the God of the universe. And doesn't it fill your heart with joy to know that when you see him face-to-face, you will be made like him? Why? Because of his grace towards you. You don't deserve it. You didn't earn it. You didn't work hard enough for it. He gave it to you freely because of his grace steadfast love. Because he died in your place, taking the penalty and shame we deserve upon himself so that we could have eternal life with him. Wow. 
His grace. We need to speak and give thanks loudly for God's gracious to us, graciousness to us in all circumstances and extend that grace to others as it has been extended to us. This is what this generation is looking for, is a group of people who will set the example, who will extend grace in the face of hatred, who will steadfastly love those who hate them, who will fight to eradicate hate with love. That speaks volumes in any generation. Fourthly, we need to speak urgently of God's glory and with eyes aflame invite others to share in it. Psalm 145, 11 and 12 says, They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Glory is one of those old words. I have to be honest that probably from my generation down, it's not particularly used much or understood. The best way I can describe it is as a feeling. You know that feeling when you're standing on the top of a mountain. We, we live not too far from Jasper or Banff. I imagine many of you have been there. And I imagine you know what it means to stand on the mountain and all of a sudden you just feel completely overwhelmed with the mountain's bigness <laughs> and your smallness. And it feels right. It feels, like, it feels like home. Like you never really want to leave that place where, where you're completely overwhelmed with your own smallness <laughs> and the mountain's bigness. For me, that recently uh, happened. Nancy and I got to take the family to uh, uh, California. I'd never been to California before. What a beautiful place. I could certainly see myself spending six years or six months of every year there. This is the millennial part in me. I told you I'm right on the border. So I could live on that beach, really. And so I was standing there on the beach watching the waves crash, and I took this picture because I wanted everyone to feel jealous. No. I wanted to remember this for the rest of my life because I was standing there in that place where I felt so incredibly small as the vastness of the Pacific Ocean was crashing against the beach in front of me. Here's what I was looking at. It's just awesome. Just awesome. This is, this is glory. This is what glory is. When we say that God is glorious, when we stand in his presence, we have that same feeling. I think he made scenes like this one just so we could get a little taste of what it is to stand in the fullness of his glory. Nancy and I stood there for an hour watching the sun, listening to the waves, feeling the wind, and feeling very small and very much at home, at peace. You know what happened the next night? I brought all the kids. (laughs) And the next night, I brought my father-in-law and mother-in-law. And the next night, well, actually, my mother-in-law didn't come. I wanted to. I invited her, but my father-in-law... Every night I could, I would take somebody to the beach and sit there and watch the sunset just because it felt like home. <laughs> it just felt right. We are made to stand in awe. We are made for that. 
We are made to stand in awe, to be awash with the glory, with glory, not our own. Let me show you something. This is a, a nebula, a picture. I saw a sunset. This is where suns are being born. This is an actual photo of a nebula from the Hubble telescope. That dark bit is a 7 million light year stretch uh, to travel just that little piece of, of darkness in the middle of the screen. Oh, it's, it doesn't show up quite so well there. It's really nice on your phone if you want to Google Hubble telescope pictures. This nebula births stars. Those, those bright lights at the top are, are gigantic suns that are being born. <laughs> Before there was anything... There was God. And he spoke and said, let there be light. And there was. And all across the universe, he continues to whisper, do it again. Do it again. And like a giddy child, he's just having so much fun. The same God who knows every star knows every hair on your head. The number of your days. He formed you in your mother's womb and he whispers to you, I love you. Wow. We need to urgently invite all those around us to come and see the glory of our God. To stand in the place of worship. It is what they are made for. God's great mission is to show his greatness, his goodness, his graciousness, and his gloriousness. Verse 13 says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. This is his mission, and he will do it. And he's invited you and me to be a part of it. Lord, I thank you that you are great. Help us to speak boldly of your greatness. Forgive us for how often we take control of our own lives, somehow doubting that you are big enough, that you are able to provide in the midst of our need. Lord, give us eyes to see your power, your resurrection power, the the power that you have to conquer death and sin. Give us eyes to see that daily and help us speak of it boldly. Lord, help us to sing of your goodness. We thank you that you are good, that you are righteous in all that you do, that you are pure, Lord, forgive us for doubting your goodness in the midst of our suffering and challenges. Lord, for whining and hiding in the midst of trouble. Give us eyes to see your goodness in the midst of that, that you are for us, and that all things work together for good for those who love you. Lord, plant that hope deep in our heart that one day when we see you, all will be made new. Good. Help us to sing of your goodness. Help us to share your graciousness. Forgive us for not extending it to others. We have been forgiven so much. 
Help us to forgive and to love those around us as you have loved us. Lord, and help us to shine your gloriousness, to reflect you. Forgive us for how often we feel like we can add to your glory in some way by polishing it up and putting our own glory over top. Lord, what foolishness that is. Forgive us. May we reflect your glory. May we, we learn to stand in such a way that we're, we're not in your way but used of you to let others see just how awesome you are. And Lord, we pray for revival amongst this generation of students, amongst this generation of young people. Lord, we thank you that you are able to build your kingdom. Thank you for inviting us to be part of it. May we be used of you to change the world. In Jesus' name.